But if you're trying to understand the grand theme of the book and basically the instruction that Solomon is giving, these are the ways to live a godly life regardless of the topic that you're covering. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. As we open up the book of Proverbs, let's take a look at a few questions, really the major questions that we should ask when we're trying to study a book. You know, the who, what, where, when, why, and even with this book, we'll have the how. So the who, who wrote Proverbs? Mostly Solomon. Not all of the Proverbs or all of the chapters in Proverbs are relegated to Solomon, namely Chapter 30. Chapter 31 is written by, it looks like, the mother of the king, Lemuel, but Lemuel may very well be sort of a nickname that Solomon's mother gave him, meaning it was the mother of Solomon. So the vast majority of the book overwhelmingly is attributed to Solomon. So that's the who. What is it? It is a book of wisdom. It's a book of short sayings that are packed with heavy truths. It's an instructional book on living. The vast majority of scripture is description, not instruction. But Proverbs is mostly an instructional book. It was also mostly written where? In Jerusalem. When was it written? Well, during Solomon's reign. The majority of the book was written early in Solomon's reign, uh, but overwhelmingly, the whole book was written during Solomon's reign, between 971 and 931 B.C. However, it was compiled into a book around 250 years later by King Hezekiah. And why? Why? Because it's instructions on godly living. And we know how the book came together, because it came together by King Hezekiah compiling these sayings and writings from Solomon. For the people. Now, the arrangement of the book is difficult because most of the book is short sayings. Nearly every paragraph moves on to a different subject. So, how do we arrange this book or think about it in an organized way? Well, this is the best solution that I have for that, this book of Proverbs. Chapters 1 through 9 seem to be Solomon writing to his son as though it's wisdom he's looking to pass on to the next generation. 
although the whole book is really wisdom that gets passed on to the generations, chapters 1 through 9 seem to be Solomon directly trying to speak to his son. Chapters 10 through 24 seem to be just wisdom gathered from Solomon throughout his life that he is writing down. It mostly has a theme of righteous versus wicked. Chapters 25 through 29 seem to specifically be the chapters that were compiled later by Hezekiah, but written by Solomon. So even though Hezekiah is attributed with putting them into the book of Proverbs, they were written by Solomon much earlier. And then the last section are the chapters that aren't by Solomon. Chapters 30 and 31 written by Agar and Lemuel. So what is this book? What you'll see in this book is a lot of common themes. There's a lot of different topics that are covered. For instance, finance. You'll see short sayings like the borrower is slave to the lender. You'll see things like that. And so there's lots of topics covered. But if you're trying to understand the grand theme of the book and basically the instruction that Solomon is giving, these are the ways to live a godly life regardless of the topic that you're covering. This is the summary overview of the book of Proverbs. So I'm going to give you four categories, and then we're going to take a look at how they fit into the entire book, as this is the layout of instruction that Solomon gives. And so the first word is worldview. What you'll see over and over and over again in the, in the book of Proverbs is Solomon pointing out his worldview that leads to godly living and leads to wisdom. Because this phrase is repeated over and over again, fear of the Lord. The second topic is really work ethic or motivation. The third topic is words. And really what that shows is what goes in, goes out. If your focus is on holy things, then you are more likely to say righteous things and vice versa. And the last thing, of course, is wise counsel. You will see a lot of parallels or statements about the type of people you associate with will affect how you live your life and how you form your ideas. And so let's look at each one of these and see how the book of Proverbs leads us through this type of instruction to live a godly life. Regardless of the topic, those four things lead you in the right direction. So opening the book of Proverbs starts like this. This is chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence and simple to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, to the words of the wise and their riddles. And so the first six verses are an opening statement. Solomon is telling you why he's writing this book. Why is he writing this book? To receive and give instruction of wisdom to help people understand justice, judgment, equity, to help, he even says in verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. So he's taking complex things and breaking it down in an easy, simple way. 
so that regardless of your skill level or understanding or age, you can understand what he's trying to say. He's helping them understand enigmas by making them simple. And it all starts with verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. So the very first statement is an opening of why he's writing the book. And as he digs into wisdom, he starts with God. Because wisdom and knowledge begin with God. And for him, what Solomon states for us is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools will despise wisdom and instruction, but those who are not fools will love the Lord. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? We constantly see this throughout this book and through Scripture, and it's one of those things that's difficult to really put one word on. Reverence is maybe the closest thing that we have to understanding what the fear of the Lord is. And we saw a little bit of it when we discussed the book of Job. As Job came to this final place where God was speaking to him and responding to Job, now, even though Job never cursed God and Job did right through the whole time of all of his suffering, when God confronted Job, he reminded him who he is. And he basically said, did you create the world? Did you create the seas? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> did you set the stars in the sky? No, God did. And recognizing the power and authority of God and starting from there as your worldview. Everything should flow from God in your worldview. If you start with me, things get twisted. And so we'll see this throughout the Proverbs. In fact, the end of the first chapter, starting in verse 27, you see this. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. And they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. And so what God is relaying through Solomon is when you choose not to fear the Lord, you basically become selfish. You ignore the lessons that God is trying to teach you. You ignore his counsel. And then God hands you over to your own lusts, to your own flesh. And when that happens and you deal with the consequences, then you call out to him and it's too late. He says, therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely, and will be secure without fear of evil. And so we get this reminder that holiness and righteousness comes from God, and it starts with God. And we cannot pretend that if we seek our own way to get our, our own way, then expect it to work out the same way. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. God is the authority, not 
us. This theme goes throughout the book of Proverbs, but let's pick up one more in Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 5 through 8 say this, and I think maybe this is the most succinct explanation of what Solomon is trying to say. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. So the question is, do you fear God or do you fear man? Does your worldview start with the respect and reverence for God? Or do you seek the approval of mankind, of culture, of society? Because wherever you get your worldview from is where you'll get your morality from. And you will end up being guilty if you don't start with God. So that reverence and respect is the first thing. Worldview. Where does your mind start? How do you see the world around you? How do you see moral standards? How do you make the decisions that you make? Is it through the lens, the scriptural lens, of what God says, or is it through the world of trying to earn the respect of mankind? Now, it's easily put this way. You can't please everyone. It's just not possible. So if you're trying to appease man, you will fail because you will ultimately always make someone angry. You will let someone down but you can please an audience of one if your worldview starts with God. And so the next section is really, how do you approach the work God gave you to do? What is your work ethic? We start with worldview, we move to work ethic. You see this theme throughout the book of Proverbs as well. So let's look at chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. I think this is maybe one of the two largest sections that cover laziness. And, you know, we see this reflected in the New Testament when we're told to do everything as if we're doing it for the Lord. It's that starting with God is your worldview thing. So that's the first point, start with God. But then how does it affect the work that you do? And so Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says this, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Great word. Consider her ways and be wise, which... Having no captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard, when you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep? So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And so basically... Solomon is comparing us to an ant. Ants are always busy. They're always working. Whether or not they're told what to do, they just work. And they prepare and gather. They make preparations in the off-season for the harvest so that they have food. If you wait and complain, you don't plant or plow your fields because it's cold, then you will have no harvest when it's warm. So Proverbs 26 Verses 13 through 16 also points out this 
sort of discussion on laziness and whether or not you're working as if you're working for God. And these sayings in this chapter are actually found repeated earlier on through Proverbs. So this is almost like a summation of some of the things that Solomon is saying. So in chapter 26, as he's repeating some of the things he's already said, Solomon writes this, the lazy man says, there is a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the, in the streets. So verse 13, first of all, uh, might be confusing. You might be going, what is he saying? There's a lion in the streets, a fierce lion in the streets. What is he saying about the lazy person? What he's really saying is they make excuses for why they don't go. There's an obstacle in the way. An obstacle in the way of getting done what God has told you to do. But really, all you're doing is making excuses. They're not an obstacle. You're just being lazy. And so what Solomon is pointing out is the lazy, those who don't work as though they're working for God, create obstacles and create complaints and give excuses for why they didn't do things. And that's what this verse is really saying. Verse 14 states, As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. That is a great visual. He just doesn't get out of bed. Verse 15, the lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. So the lazy man, this picture that Solomon is painting, is reaching into the bowl of food that's already prepared for you and being so lazy you can't bring it to your mouth. It's already there for you. That's almost like Jesus when he's talking about the sparrows. And he says, look at, the, look at the birds in the sky and the finches and the sparrows. And look, look, don't, doesn't God dress them? Doesn't God feed them in the fields? Don't they look beautiful? Doesn't God care about you more than these? Like, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough of its own. But God is, he's basically saying, God has will give you what you need if you're following him. But if you're rejecting him and you're not working for him and you're just being lazy, then you're also not going to have anything because you're also not working for yourself either. And he sums it up with this, verse 16. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Now, I think we see this really in our culture now. We see the lazy who have, they have an answer for everything. They have an excuse for everything. They can talk their way. It's almost working harder to be lazy than it is to just do what you needed to do. I'll give you an example, uh, a negative one from my own past. When I was in high school, these were the rules. I never made merit roll or honor roll because you would make merit roll or honor roll if you had a specific average and were not failing any classes. So I never made merit roll or honor roll, and you're about to find out why. But the other thing was I was never on academic probation because you had to fail two classes to be on academic probation. So in my brilliant mind, what I decided to maximize my own work for school really by minimizing my effort to get the most out of school and the most out of my personal life outside of school, this is what I did. I would fail a class 
every quarter, but I would rotate which classes I failed each quarter. And so the next quarter, I would bring that grade up in the class that I was failing and then choose whatever I had the highest grade in and fail that class the next quarter so that I would always have like an 85 average. I would have made merit roll, except I was failing one class every quarter, but I was never on academic probation, so I didn't miss out on any school events. And this is how I worked the schedule. I had to plan attentively how to not do homework. I basically created a rotating calendar in my head of how I was going to avoid work. That's kind of what's being stated here. Now that's a story I don't like to tell the students because I don't want to give them ideas. But that was, that's the lazy man, right? You have, you can work your way through situations to not do what you should be doing. I should have been putting forth my best effort, right? I was a kid who, I took, when I took the ACTs, I didn't score below the 93rd percentile on anything. But my grade point average and my academic history did not show the same quality as my test scores, which led me to a path of hating being a student and taking a long time off before I went back to college where God ultimately dragged me back to to get my degree in ministry. And so what would have happened if I was wiser? I probably would have had a scholarship and I wouldn't be still paying off student loans with two children in the house, right? But I made my bed, I lay in it now. right? And just because I gain wisdom now, I still have the repercussions of the past. And that's, that's how the world works. So that's the second thing, work ethic. Do you work as though you're working for the Lord? So worldview, do you start with God? Work ethic, do you work as though you're working for God? Third is words. In the back, all the way back to chapter six, we see God says this through Solomon. These six things the Lord hates. This is verses 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And so this is like a Hebrew idiom of adding one to what is stated. Really, it's like adding exaggeration. So there are seven things here that God sees as an abomination. This is what he writes. A proud look. Now I think about that, especially dealing with young people all the time. How concerned are you about how you look in front of others? A proud look. Second, a lying tongue. God sees that as an abomination. Third, hands that shed innocent blood. Violence against the innocent, God hates it. I think earlier in our prayer for Israel, this is something that God hates, what is happening right now. Fourth, a heart that devises wicked plans. Five, feet that are swift in running to evil. Six, a false witness who speaks lies. And last, one who sows discord among the brethren. And so of the seven, nearly half are about what you say, how you speak, right? A lying tongue false witness who speaks lies. 
sowing discord among the brethren, which is really like spreading rumors. In, in Proverbs 10, 31 and 32, it states this, The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. And so you get this concept of, right, if your world starts with worldview, if your worldview starts with God and you're working as though you're working for God, what goes in will come out. What is in your heart will come out. I had a pastor who often put it this way. He called it the toothpaste analogy. What do you get when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste? Toothpaste. Because whatever's inside will come out, regardless of how you look on the outside. Regardless of what tasks you do or what things you try to do to make yourself look good on the outside, when the pressure is applied and life gets hard, what's inside of you will come out like a tube of toothpaste. And that's what Solomon is basically saying through God. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, right? There's also a lot of talk throughout the book of Proverbs of the righteous being encouragers or being good counsel. And so you see those who have started with the worldview of submitting to God's authority and working as though they're working for God, what goes into them are the scriptures and the ideas that come from God. And so when the pressure is applied, what comes out of them are the words from God. But if you take in what the world says and the world's ideas, or you take in hate and evil, what comes out of you, regardless of how you want to look on the outside, when pressure is applied, evil comes out. And the last thing, in terms of living a wise and godly life, which is the, pl the point of the instruction of this book, is to surround yourselves with wise counsel. So the four W's, worldview, work ethic, words, and wise counsel. And this will keep you on a path of godly living. So all the way back in the first chapter, in verses we've already looked at, this was pointed out in Solomon's opening statement. In verses 5 through 8, it says, A wise man will hear and increase learning. A man of understanding will attain what? Wise counsel to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so part of fearing the Lord is also seeking godly, wise counsel. Shun evil counsel. Now in verse 8, it even says, after Solomon opens up his book and the first statement that he makes is to fear the Lord, the next thing he says is, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Right? Shun evil counsel, hear the instruction of your father and don't forsake the law of your mother. Who loves you most? Your parents, right? And so, obviously, they're looking out for you. Listen to what they say. And I think it's great that the really scripture focuses on the family unit. It starts with God, and then the next most important instruction in your life is the family unit. And that's pointed out right in the first eight verses of Proverbs. In Proverbs 13, uh, verse 20, we're just going to go through a few single verses here. 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. But the, the companion of fools will be destroyed. Basically saying, who you associate with, you will become like. If you surround yourself with wise people, you are likely to become wise. 
If you surround yourself with fools, you will act foolishly. Pretty simple. Proverbs 18, verse 1 states, A man who isolates, isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. And so this is even not about seeking out bad counsel, but just isolating yourself from good counsel. When you isolate yourself, then you rage against all wise judgment. You don't want to hear anyone else's opinion, and you've made yourself the God of your own world. Proverbs 18, 24 says this, A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so wise counsel and good friends, hard to come by, but who you associate with will affect your life. That's part of the reason that the church gathers together. Now, the main reason is to be strengthened by the word of God, but fellowship also is important. If you surround yourself with wise counsel, if you surround yourself with people who are also seeking God's instructions, you're more likely, as you band together, to be able to live out God's instructions. And we're going to close with this, Proverbs 31. We're going to read 10 through 31, because I think it's interesting. The opening of the book starts with the fear of the Lord. And the instruction throughout the book is really these four main factors, right? Your worldview, whether or not you start with God. Your work ethic, whether or not you work as though you're working for God. The words that come out of your mouth are representative of what goes into you. And the last thing is to seek wise counsel. And interestingly, Proverbs 31 ends the book of Proverbs with the most important relationship in our lives on this earth, which is your spouse. And so this is Solomon's mother, likely, writing to Solomon about a virtuous wife. And so this is her description of a virtuous wife. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it from her, from her profits. She plants a vineyard. And so already you're seeing this, this woman who is faithful, trustworthy, works hard, much like was already described in the book of Proverbs, trustworthy by her husband. She provides for her family, and she makes intelligent, wise business decisions thus far. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor, so she's generous. Yet she reaches out her hands to, yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen. Her husband is known at the gates. She makes her husband a respected man. 
when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. Not only is she make her husband respected, not only is she gracious and uh, generous, she's kind. She watches over the ways of the household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She works hard. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. And it's nice that even in this description for Solomon, for what a virtuous wife is, the role of the husband is also not forgotten. That the husband does not overlook these things about the woman. He doesn't forget them, but he also praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. And the sad part about this is, as Solomon finishes up, well, this book is, is, ends with this letter that was written to Solomon by his mother, likely. Ends with this description of being in this really committed relationship, not forgetting to praise your wife when you notice all of these things about her, that she works hard, that she's kind, that she takes care of her household, she makes wise business decisions, that you praise her when you see these things. And unfortunately, the downfall of Solomon was his wife's, that he gave in to having over a thousand women in his harem and spreading his heart in too many places and giving in, losing sight of his worldview, losing God as where his starting point was and giving in to the pagan gods of the wives that came later. His work ethic didn't come as though he was working for God. It came as though he was working for his pagan wives. The words that came out of his mouth ended, though, wisely. And we'll see that next week, as we, or not next week, in two weeks when we open up the book of Ecclesiastes. But in the end, the wise counsel that he used to have, dealing with the priests and his initial wife, which you'll see when we go through the Song of Solomon, ends badly when he adds over a thousand women to his harem and he gets unwise counsel and becomes servant to their gods. And you get the, the twist of how Solomon started well and ended poorly because he lost the most important part of this, the worldview. God starts first in coming under his authority. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this book, thank you for the instruction within it. I pray that we learn the lessons that you instruct us through this book to, to learn and to be wise in our decision-making, not just to know what's right, but to be wise enough to act on what's right, that we set our lives up in a way where we prepare the fields for the harvest, physically, materially, and spiritually, most importantly that we prepare ourselves for what you have for us and the, that we work as though we're working for you. Help us not lose sight of you as the authority and to seek out wise counsel for difficult decisions. In Jesus' name, amen.